this morning we'll continue our series and we'll finish it next Sunday morning. And the whole series has been based upon this idea and this, this sort of analogy between life and, and a puzzle. And how you know that if you've ever put together a puzzle, and I, I, I get bored but not that bored, so maybe if some of you put together puzzles, you, you know, you think, well, that's really exciting. I, you know, I, I admire those people who have the patience to sit and put together puzzles over and over again. Not me. I lack the patience. But anyway, I'm amazed at how folks who will take a thousand or, or, or so odd, you know, some odd piece puzzle and be able to put the whole thing together. But you know, it's, it's always the case, unless you're just a genius, which I know that for the most part that's what we've got here, but unless you're just a genius, right, you've got to look at the picture on the box over and over and over again. Because if not, how are you supposed to know what the puzzle is going to look like? You've got to shoot for, here's what it's supposed to be. And so this whole series has been based upon the idea that there is a picture on the box that God, when he made the earth and when he designed it, as we see in the first several chapters of Genesis, it was supposed to look like something. It, it had a, an original design, but things got messed up. The puzzle was taken out of the box and scattered everywhere, as we've seen over the last several weeks. But there is a way, and we know that Jesus is that way, that we can get back to God's original design, the picture on the box. And so what we've looked at each time, every, every message is, what was the original design, how things went wrong, and then how can, we can get back there. And so over this series, we, we, we started by looking at the beginning of creation and how God designed it, and, and, and it was perfect. And, and when he created humans, he made us to be in a perfect relationship with him, but obviously things went wrong. And so we, we've learned how to get back there because we, we saw the, the beginning of sin and how the beginning of sin was, was sort of the same way it is now, that it was, it was our attempt, man's attempt, to be like God or to play God in our own lives because we don't truly trust him. We don't completely trust God. And, and if... if if for no one else, that speaks to me because I know a lot of times when I enter into sin in any particular area, it's because I really haven't trusted God in that area. I, I'm trying to make things happen on my own or do this because if I don't, then this won't happen or whatever. And we looked also at the beginning of marriage and how in order to get back to God's original design for marriage, we've got to pursue oneness, which is what he created in the very beginning, to be one. And, and then we looked at, at the story of of Cain and Abel and how there was an unfortunate pattern that began with that story that continues today. And that is that we often expect the blessings of God without doing life God's way. And how it's foolish, really, and we've all been there, to, to expect God to do something in our lives without doing life His way. And so we looked at that. And then we looked at, at Noah and the story of, of the flood. That was a couple Sunday nights ago. And, and how why was it that Noah was spared from the destruction of the world? And, and we saw there how, how we can live godly in a very ungodly world. And so we, we pick up the story today, and we'll, we'll see in chapter 11, I think a, a principle that if we get this, that it will alter our, our lives. It will change the course of our lives. And here's, here's what I mean by that. I think this is one of those foundational principles that, that if we operate by it, then, then it sort of steers our ship, so to speak, in a different direction. Now understand that when we start applying principles like that, it's not easy because it does change things. And so I think as a result of that, there are very few people that get what this principle is all about that we'll look at today. 
And unfortunately, many people who come to church every single week and proclaim themselves to be Christians, few people get this that are even in that boat. And so my prayer is that I will get it and that you will get it and that somehow God will take our getting it and use it to make an incredible difference that we can't even explain. And so I think that if we pay attention today and we look at the Scripture and understand what God is saying, it'll be one of those foundational life principles that when applied, yes, it'll change things. But we'll see on the other side that we've gotten closer to the picture on the puzzle box than we were before. So I want you to look at it, Genesis chapter 11. And the verses will be on the screen behind me if you didn't bring a Bible or if, or if, uh, if you are needing to hold it a little further back or a little closer these days. Either way, I know uh, I'm well on my way to that. I can't say anything about that at all. But the, the verses will be on the screen. Let's look at this story. At one time, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So get the idea. Here's what's going on. You've got a people who all speak the same language, using the same vocabulary. They're moving from the east. They're migrating uh, ba- based upon what, what uh, you know, God did in, in Genesis chapter 9, telling Noah, here, you know, and, and we see in Genesis 9 and 10, the family of Noah. And so we've got lots more people in the world. They're migrating around, and settling down and all of that stuff. And, and so they, they settle in this valley. They find this land that's sort of a land of protection between the mountains and all of that. And they settle there. And as a result, they begin to be prosperous, and they say, well, okay, we, we want to be remembered. Well, what if somebody walks by this city one day and doesn't remember anything about it? So let's build an incredible tower that reaches to the sky, this, this incredible building that people will look and say, wow, what, weren't they something special? Let's make a name for ourselves, they say, or else we'll be scattered throughout the world. In a sense, we won't be remembered for anything. Our lives really won't count unless we make a name for ourselves. So that's, that's sort of where they are. And then verse 5. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building. When it says the Lord came down, it doesn't mean that somehow he was out doing something else, say way out in the solar system, and somebody sent him a text message or an email that said, God, you need to come and check this out. Nobody called God and said, hey, I think you're missing this. You need to come and figure this out. It's simply a statement that says God knows everything, and it wasn't beyond him what was going on. So when it says he came down, it didn't mean that he was distracted, and then, oh, wait a minute, I need to go take care of this. It's just symbolizing God knew what was going on. And so good, bad, or otherwise, understand God knows what's going on in your life. And for some of us, that's a tremendous encouragement today. For others, we think, oh. So God came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If, as one people, having all the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. In a sense, God is saying, there's going to be no end to this spiral of sin that's going on. If they're all together and can conspire in this way, it's just going to keep spiraling downward. Come, verse 7, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building this city. Therefore, its name is called Babylon, or Babel, 
For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. As we've mentioned before, the facts of the story are important, and yet it's not only that we need to know the facts of the story. You may say, well, why do people speak different languages? Well, we can go back to Genesis chapter 11 to discover God scrambled things because He knew that if things continued the way they were, the world was going to get into a worse spot than it had been before. And the spot that it was in before in chapter 6 was where God sent a flood and destroyed the whole thing. So God's at least giving us a chance here by scattering people and changing their language. But to simply know the origin of different languages, it comes from Genesis chapter 11, really doesn't do a whole lot for you. Great, now I know where it's found. What do I do about that? So you understand that the facts of the story are important, no doubt. But they're only important because they point to something else, some principle about God or some principle about us that we've got to apply. And so we, we know that Moses was the author of Genesis. He's writing all of this, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, while they're wandering around out in the desert uh, before they enter the promised land. And so Moses is jotting all of this stuff down to make sure that the Israelites knew their history. Where did we come from? How did we get here? What, did, what was God doing from the very beginning? How did things go wrong? What was going on? And so he puts this in here for a particular reason. It's interesting, though, where it's located, because chapter 10 is a bunch of genealogies. You know, all those begats and all that stuff. You remember that from a long time ago, and you just think, well, how on earth is that stuff in there? Well, it's got a point, too. And then right after this, chapter 11, verse 10, there's more begats. There they are. They're all right there. He had this kid, and he lived this long, and so on and so forth. And then we have this story of these nameless people wandering around, settling in some valley, building a tower, God getting angry, and scattering everybody and confusing the languages. doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to why Moses would put that between two genealogies. And yet I think we see <clears throat> that after the flood, when God cleaned everything out and started over through Noah, we see that it didn't take long. The flood ended in chapter 9. Chapter 11, we see things got messed up again. Isn't it interesting how we, all, we just typically mess things up? You know, I, I, it amazes me to see how many people think that humans by nature are just good. We mess everything up. There's nothing inherently good about us at all. Only good comes from Jesus Christ living himself through us. We know that. It's interesting. Things got messed up again. We'll look at that story today. What went wrong again? And then verses 10 through the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 that we'll look at next week show that God, even though things got messed up, God wasn't finished. God's still got a plan. There's still hope. He's still working. He's still going to do something to accomplish what He wants. And so even though things got messed up, God wasn't finished. We'll look at that next week. But I want us to look at what went wrong. How did things go from chapter 9 when God sends the rainbow as a covenant with Noah to say, look, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. Go and do what you're supposed to do. Have lots of kids spread out. This is what you're supposed to do. And then two chapters later, God's having to disperse everybody because they're so evil again. So what went wrong at the Tower of Babel? I want us to look at that. If you've got a bulletin and like to follow along, you can flip it over and there's some notes you can take on the back, just sort of as a guide as we move through the Scripture to kind of help us see how things are organized and so on. And maybe, maybe help you remember it. You forget 80% of what you don't write down. So write something down. 
Anyway, <clears throat> your list for this afternoon, whatever you're writing down, I know how it goes. When I worked with teenagers, speaking of, of teenagers being scared of them, they used to just draw pictures of me the whole time on the back of the bulletin I would give them, and they'd hand them to me after it's over. Here you go, I drew you a picture, and it's me. And, and the progression of my hair over the years when I worked with teenagers went from having a little bit more than I have now to then what I've got now, which was interesting. So anyway, all that to say, if you're drawing pictures of me, I'd be happy to check it out and compare it with the ones that I have in my collection from all the teenagers that gave, that gave them to me. Uh, let's look at uh, what went wrong at the Tower of Babel. I, I, think, I think, first of all, what we see here is that they, they didn't really do what God said. They didn't really do what God said. And here's, here's what I want you, to, want you to notice. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the command. That's what they were supposed to do. Fill the earth. It's a big place. Keep going. Fill it up. Multiply. Spread out. Go until I tell you to stop, basically. Chapter 11, verse 2. As people migrated from the east, they're going, they're multiplying, they're filling, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They didn't really do what God said. God said, multiply, keep spreading out, don't stop till I tell you. They stopped because they found a nice valley. This is a good place to settle down. Wow, isn't this a great place of protection? Well, maybe God said that, maybe he didn't, but look at, look at this place. This is where we need to be. They didn't really do what God said. God said, spread out, fill the earth. They stopped and settled. Now, before you think, well, okay, does this mean that leaving here today, we are now all going to go sell our homes and fill the earth? I don't believe that the Scripture is going to give you that direct parallel, though God may speak into your life something according to that today. But I want you to understand that the principle is that they didn't really do what God had said. And we do the same thing. I think it's unfortunate, I have to admit it, but we try to convince ourselves otherwise, but we really do the same thing. We don't always do really what God said. I mean, think about it. I have young children. Some of you used to be young children. I know some of you just born grown up, never dealt with anything like that. Some of you have had young children. Some of you have them today. Some have grandchildren and so on. You know when you tell a kid to go clean their room and you walk in, you think, oh, okay. Well, it's kind of, you can actually see the floor a little bit. And then you start looking in other places, like under the bed. You just think, wait a minute. They just shoved it under the bed. They didn't clean the room. And then you open the closet and you get this avalanche of stuff on top of you. They didn't clean the room. They just shoved it under the bed and into the closet. They didn't really do what I told them to do. They didn't clean the room. They just made it look like it was clean. They just shoved things out of the way. They just put it over where they hoped nobody would notice it. You know, I think in our lives, that's a lot of the way sometimes we obey God. Is we sort of pick up a little bit to kind of make it look like we're obeying God. But boy, we get into the the details of our lives, and we learn very quickly that we just sort of moved that disobedience from sort of making it look like we weren't really doing what God said, and we'll shove it under the bed and hope nobody notices that part of my life, or put it in the closet, well, don't open that door because it's all falling out on you. Sometimes we're just like those kids where we do some of what God said. We sort of, yeah, I picked it up a little bit, or, or we migrated from the east as these people did, 
But then we don't do all that God said. We stop and we settle or we shove things under the bed or in the closet. We just don't exactly follow God all the way. We see that these people didn't really do what God said. We have the good fortune of not only having the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but the entire Bible to pick up on the themes. What is it that God has said? What has He told us to do? You think of different themes, you could make your own list. I jotted a few things down. Some things, what has God told us to do? Now, these are not any conclusive lists. There's lots of things in the Bible. One of the things God has told us to do is to not conform to the world, not to be pressed into that mold. We're going to look at that tonight, why it's okay to be a nonconformist. Some of you love the 60s. You were a nonconformist. You're going to find out tonight. It's okay. Different kind of nonconformity, but it's okay to be a nonconformist. We're going to look at that tonight. God has said, don't conform. Don't let yourself be pressed in to be just like everybody else. Don't pursue the same things. Don't go after the same things. Don't conform. In the Bible, we see this theme, worship God alone. Nothing else comes before Him. The the Israelites, the whole story of the Old Testament is their problem of worshiping other gods and God having to come down and smack them around. And finally, finally, by the end of the Old Testament, they get it. It took a long time for them to get it. But finally, 39 books worth of stuff, and they finally get it. Worship God alone. The Bible also says to, to be holy, something God has said. To be set apart, to be different from the inside out. Not just on the outside where people walk in the room and think things are clean, but from the inside out, every detail. God has also said to make disciples. Jesus himself, right before he ascends, go and make disciples. You realize that's not an option? Uh, that's an option we like to think, or that's, that's the thing we like to think of it, uh, as an option, but it's really not. God has said, go and make disciples. Trust Him. Love others as ourselves. These are things that God has said. Do we take them and really do what God has said? These folks in Genesis chapter 11 did part of what God said. They began to migrate, but, but they didn't do all. I mean, if they knew what God had said to do, and I'm sure they did from Genesis 9, Why didn't they really obey? What stopped them? I mean, they had to have known what happened in the the flood, that God destroyed the earth. He got really upset because people didn't do what he told them to do. Why then didn't they really obey? I think it leads us to the second one, which is this. They didn't really do what God said because they didn't understand life God's way. They didn't understand life God's way. They, They thought that life was meant to be what they had described it to be. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. But life God's way involves living with humility. Completely different than our world. It involves trusting Him, living by faith, and what I call a willingness to live in the fog. You ever notice how when you walk with God, He doesn't tell you everything? Well, I wish He would. Certainly be nice. But sometimes walking with God is like driving in fog. You kind of have to slow down a little bit. Pay attention to where the turns are. Understand the road a little bit better. Can't just go through life expecting to see everything exactly the way. When you walk with God, sometimes he'll spell everything out. Most of the time, what I have found, is it's like driving in fog. And you say, well, that's really great. Well, that's exciting. Let me go drive in fog. That's fun. But I'm telling you what, when you know the creator of the fog... It's okay to walk in the fog. When you know that 
you know, I don't know the very next step that God is going to call me to take, but I know the one who's going to call me to take that next step, then you can trust whatever step he tells you to take. When you know the one who controls the fog, life in the fog then is okay because you can trust him. Life God's way views life as being temporary. It's not just about the here and now. In fact, life here, though it is vitally important, is simply a preparation for the life to come. That doesn't negate the importance of life here because if we don't prepare here for what's coming, we're not going to be happy with what's coming. But understand that we are simply passing through. They didn't understand that. They wanted to settle. Let's settle in the valley. Let's view life as all about right now. Life God's way is also about seeking His kingdom first, which means that not only do we prepare ourselves for the life to come, but we're trying to prepare other people for the life to come as well. The people in Genesis chapter 11 didn't understand what life was, God's way was all about. And I think largely because, and this is probably their biggest downfall, they wanted life to be about them. They wanted life to be about them. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower that reaches to the sky. Let's do something that will make our mark on the world. And I think it's easy to spend each stage of our lives doing the very same thing. You get out of school or college or whatever you're doing, now it's time. I'm going to get myself a job and I'm going to make a name so that I can do this or I can do that. We learn to sort of protect, live in the valley. We learn that, well, I want to prosper and do, and do things that will make myself be remembered or to make things a whole lot better for me than my parents or grandparents had it or whatever. And they wanted to do things in Genesis 11, life on their terms, life their way. The problem is that we face as Christians as though the Bible flies against all of that. Our world promotes life our way, life being about us. And consider this, if an alien came to America and wanted to, some of you believe that they've already been here, certainly nobody here today is in that boat, but anyway, if an alien came to America, landed somewhere and said, I'd like to find out about these people, what's important to them, what are they all about, what drives them, what do they enjoy doing, what, what really have they given themselves to? I think one first response would be, well, for hours upon end each day, they sit in front of this thing that's sometimes square and sometimes rectangular, widescreen, and these images and sounds sort of emanate from this thing they sit in front of. Well, what do they do? Well, they just sit there. Do they talk to it? Sometimes they yell at it. Depends on how fast the action is and if it's a round ball or not. Sometimes they yell at it. But most of the time they just sit there and just receive whatever's coming at them. Think about if an alien came and watched our television. What would they find is being thrown at us? What then would we realize that our gods truly are? We would learn that what our culture values is food. Think of all the advertisements about food. About being attractive. About wearing the right stuff. Driving the right thing. Living in the right place. Making sure you take the right kind of medicines for every particular ailment under the sun. Think about all the advertisements about medicine. Great, I love medicine. It's great. But just think about it. We're bombarded with it. 
An alien would think, well, good grief, you just take these things, everything's okay, everything's fine. It goes on and on. But ultimately, what those advertisements point to is that life can be all about you. Life can be. If you just get this, if you just do this, if you take this pill, if you wear these clothes, if you drive that thing, and boy, this sounds all cliche, but life can truly be about you and you can have it, what you've always wanted. And some of us have pursued that. And we've got closets full of stuff that we haven't worn. We're just waiting for it to come back into style maybe or whatever. But we've got closets and houses and lives full of things that largely have left us unfulfilled because we realize that all that stuff brings us to the same result that these people at the Tower of Babel faced. Do you realize that their worst fears were realized when they began to make a name for themselves? Because what was their worst fear? Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be what? Scattered. Nobody's going to know we were here. Nobody's going to remember us whatsoever. So they build a tower, at least start it. They begin to make a name for themselves. Then in verse verse 8, what did the Lord do because they did that? He did what? Scattered. Their worst fear was realized when they began to make a name for themselves. They ended up unfulfilled. Their city was unfinished. Everything they hoped to accomplish was left undone because they pointed life toward them and not toward God. And life on our terms will lead us to the same sort of end because it just doesn't work that way. And either in this life or in the life to come, we will wind up unfulfilled, unfinished, and thinking, boy, I have missed it. If life is about us, if we don't really do what God says, if we don't really understand life His way, but when we understand life His way, when we as a result do, really do what He says, and live as if life is about God and not about us, then we can answer and respond and, and operate according to the call of God for every single Christian. And here's what it is. This is the life principle that if you get it and apply it, will change things. It's this. Make much of Jesus wherever He leads you. Make much of Jesus wherever He leads you. How is that a life principle? Here's how it is. Because if this is the guide for every interaction, every pursuit, every day of your life, everywhere you go. Imagine how different your life would be if your interaction with every single person was based upon the principle, I am here to make a big deal out of Jesus Christ to every person I come into contact with. Does that mean you've got to be an obnoxious jerk about it and carry a really large Bible and smack people in the head? No. But my focus on that interaction is going to be a little different because I'm going to see that person in light of eternity. How can I help them see Jesus in some way? Everything that I do then is guided by that principle. The truth is we often ask, what's God going to do for me? How's God working in my life? And I believe God calls us to ask something a little bit different. Maybe like, how can I position myself to make a big deal, make much out of Jesus wherever He leads me? What that takes is to do what God says. To, to really do what He says. To understand life His way. To live as if life is about Him and not about you and not about me. 
And I thought of a few areas where we interact with people in life on a regular basis. And one of those, of course, is going to work. How can I make a big deal out of Jesus and just going to work? Are you kidding? You don't, I mean, all I do is do the same thing over and over every day. What difference does it make? You don't understand my work situation. I know this. Your work situation may not be understandable to me from your perspective. But I know that God has called each of us that have a job to be the absolute best employee that we can be. To show up on time, to do our job with excellence, to do the above and beyond things that we're never going to get paid for and get credit for. But I'm telling you, God has called us to do those things. And in so doing, our underlying principle is not so that maybe somebody will notice and I'll be recognized. That may happen and there's nothing wrong with that. If you get a raise for doing those things, good. I hope you do. I think that'd be great. That's an, old, that's an incredible blessing. But the purpose is to make much of Jesus think about it. The people you work with that are excellent at their job, they get a voice. They get listened to. They get a little bit of influence. Not always, but many times they do. What if that person who was the great employee got influence because their goal is to make much of Jesus and the influence they're given then is godly? How about that? What if we viewed our work in that way? What if, and I know school is ending, but what if over the summer our students, be they high school, middle school, or college students or whatever, understood that, you know what, in order to make a whole lot out of Jesus, I've got to see things differently than the way other students see it. And the way I see that is that my grades, my behavior, my attitude, how I act around my friends, everything that I do at school is an extension of the call of God on my life. And it matters. I find it very interesting to see Christian students who will not take school seriously, not because of what it will get them, but because Jesus has called us to a high-level excellence in everything that we do. Does that mean you've got to be a straight-A student? No. But that means you better lay it on the line every single day. Everything you do reflects your relationship with Jesus Christ. If the best you can do is the best you can do, then hold your head high. But if it's not, work on it this summer if you're a student. Do the very best you can so that you can make a big deal out of Jesus. Trust me, people pay attention. In your neighborhood in your social network, in the sports that your kids play, your grandkids, the ones you coach. I coach a t-ball team. I told you I get to make order out of chaos, or at least attempt that, twice a week with 14, 4, and 5-year-olds. How exciting. But how can we be, as God has called us, to be salt and light in those areas? I want to challenge us as we think about the people that we interact with at work or in our neighborhoods or wherever you are around people to take the opportunity to be a shepherd or to be a pastor or to be a minister to them. You realize that I'm not the only person that can do that, thank God, because I'm not the best at it. Some of you are the best at it. God has given you what it takes and equipped you and raised you up to be the ministers to those people. So when somebody's having a bad day, you find out about it, you can jot them a note. It's not hard. I try to do that from time to time. Hey, I heard you're having a rough day. I know things aren't going real well for you. Maybe none of my business, but I'm praying for you. Put an arm around somebody. Be an encouragement to them. Somehow be a minister to that person. Making much of Jesus wherever he leads you is at work, at school, 
with the people you're around, and it's also about the way that we handle what is often most precious to us, and that is our money. You realize that in the hands of somebody who understands that they are here to make much out of Jesus, in the hands of that person, money is a great good. And as much as God can give them. I, well, I pray that God will bless people beyond their wildest imaginations with money whose vision of life is to make much of Jesus. Not so that Elm Grove can receive more of your money. Not even the point. But because in the hands of somebody who gets it about what life is all about, money is a great good. Lots of people who have understood that life is about pointing people to Jesus Christ have done incredible things with the money that God has given them. So earn it. Spend it wisely. Save it. Invest it. Enjoy it. But above all, above all, do everything you can to use your money as a way to make a big deal, to make much out of Jesus, every chance you can. And I think you'll find your money is more enjoyable as a result. I think you'll find that you're more, more at peace, regardless of whether you have a lot or little. And so make much out of Jesus wherever He leads you. So we've got a choice to make. A conscious effort, an intentional decision to go a different direction maybe than we've gone before. Most people don't really do what God said. Our world gives pretty good evidence of that. Most people don't really understand life God's way. Sort of confused about that. And ultimately, most people live life as if it's about them. You're going to build a tower to something or to someone throughout your lifetime. And so will it be for you to make much of you or to make much of Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear you can't have it both ways. The results of a life that was given to making much of Jesus are found in Philippians chapter 3. Don't feel like you have to turn there. You won't find these verses on the screen. But I want to show you the results of a life that's given to making much of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in the first few verses of this particular chapter, writes about his pursuit of things that built a monument for himself, what made him look good, what was going to get him remembered to the people that he valued most. And then he met Jesus. And in verse 7, he says this, Philippians 3, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss. That word loss means a detriment. It's holding me back because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul's life, after he met Jesus, was given to making much of his Savior. Paul wrote this letter from prison. Not from some valley of protection. Not from a position of prosperity where everything had gone his way. From prison, awaiting his fate 
which ultimately we know would be to be beheaded because he was a Christian and would not stop preaching. But he said, even so, there is nothing, nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. Not all those accolades he had received, not all the pursuits he had gone after, nothing, nothing compared to knowing Jesus. He wanted to know him even more. That's what a life that's given to Jesus, making much of him, leads to. That in good times and in bad, Paul had confidence knowing that he was on the right track. He had peace that he would later write about in the very next chapter that passes all understanding as he sat in prison. Nothing was more important to him than knowing Jesus, than making a big deal out of him. I want you to listen to the words of a song that you'll hear in just a minute and consider which path your life is on. Is it making much of you or making much of Jesus?